Psalm 80, beginning in verse 1. O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim, before Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come to save us. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them to drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. O God of hosts, restore us, and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadows, and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges, so that all who pass by that way pick its fruit? The boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted. And on the Son, whom you have strengthened for yourself, it is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. And then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Father, we pray that you would give us the patience to take the time we need to understand this psalm, to see its great application, and to, Father, have it impact us personally and congregationally as a church. Father, pray for your mercy and your grace to accompany your teaching this morning. As we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I like to start out with a story or some kind of anecdote or something that that leads us into where we're headed. I'm not going to do that this morning. There's too much important biblical background that I need to give you right up front, and I want to get right to it. In fact, the illustration or illustrations today are from Scripture anyway. So we're just going to let the Bible give the illustrations, and we're going to lean into this. If you have a pen and paper handy, you're going to want to jot some things down. You need to understand as we begin this that in the Bible there are three trees, three different trees that are pictures of or portraits or illustrations of Israel. Three trees that illustrate Israel. The vine, the fig tree, and the olive tree. The vine, the fig tree, and the olive tree. Now hearing that, you might not be surprised for you've probably heard at some point, perhaps, one of these trees used applied to Israel. But there's more to this. All three of these actually portray a season, a specific season of Israel. The vine portrays Israel from Joshua to Jesus. That time frame from Joshua to Jesus, from the point where the people entered the land of promise all the way until Jesus came the first time, the vine is a picture of that season of Israel's life. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 3. Reads, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? Isaiah 5. In fact, I'll tell you this also Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, and Matthew 22, all three are psalms of the vine, or teachings of the vine. We'll look at that this morning. So the vine, Israel from Joshua to Jesus. Secondly, the fig tree. The fig tree is Israel from the rejection of Jesus to the return of Jesus. So that would be Israel now. In addition to Israel from AD 33, 34, somewhere around there, all the way up to present day, is Israel portrayed by the fig tree. Perhaps you recall this, Matthew 24, verse 32. Learn the parable from the fig tree, Jesus said. When its branch has become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So the vine, 
Israel from Joshua to Jesus. The fig tree. Israel from the rejection of Jesus to the return of Jesus. And number three, the olive tree. And the olive tree is Israel from the second coming of Jesus through the millennial kingdom. Hosea chapter 14 verse 6 of Israel. God says the following, His shoots will sprout, and His beauty will be like the olive tree, and His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. The olive tree is that beautiful, enduring picture of Israel, and Israel especially, reborn, come alive again during during the millennial kingdom at the return of Jesus. Why is the olive tree a picture of Israel there? Well, did you know it's it's impossible nearly to kill an olive tree? I mean, you can do an awful lot to an olive tree. Burn it down, give it some time, and a little olive shoot will spring up out of the burned trunk. It's an amazing thing. And the way the olive tree grows, it can be gutted right up the middle, but it grows out and further out on the outside. When we were in Israel, we saw a grove. In fact, we were privileged to enter into an ancient grove of olive trees right on the Mount of Olives and to go in there and spend some time to meditate and pray. And it's believed by some, as you look at those trees, even in the place of Gethsemane today, there are olive trees there, perhaps 2,000 years old. To stand there and look at trees that maybe Jesus sat underneath 2,000 years ago. They are amazingly enduring trees. In the front yard of the home I grew up in, in Southern California, there's still an olive tree growing. It's been there for 45 years. I used to climb it, sit up in it. When we were down there over vacation, I... I look at that tree every time I walk into my parents' house. I I notice that olive tree that's still there after all these many, many years. But Bible students mark this and understand it. This is absolutely key to understanding the prophets when they talk about Israel. Psalm 80 is the psalm of the vineyard. The psalm of the vineyard. Israel the vine. Israel the fig tree. Israel the olive tree. But in Psalm 80, it's the psalm of the vineyard. What season is the psalm of the vineyard? From Joshua to Jesus. From Joshua to Jesus. Look at the heading of Psalm 80. It says, For the choir director set to El Shoshanim. Now Shoshanim, again, is set to the lilies. And so we think this is probably a musical refrain, some kind of a musical number that, that was commonly known to the people. And these words were set to that. Shoshanim, to the lilies. A dut, in the Hebrew, a dut literally means a testimony. So as Asaph writes this psalm, Asaph, that, that prophet poet of Israel, as he writes this psalm, he is writing it as a testimony. A testimony of what? Well, we saw, saw back in Psalm 78, verse 5, that God established a testimony in Jacob. The vine, Israel, Jacob, is a testimony. This psalm is a testimony. What exactly does that mean? It means that Israel is a witness. You could call Israel Exhibit A, a convicting piece of evidence as God presents His case to the world. Israel is a testimony of what God is doing, of who God is, of what He's about, His relationship with the people of Israel. And this is why it's so critical that we understand Israel even today. It's why it's so unfortunate that in many churches Israel is not even talked about or addressed because Israel is the testimony. Israel is a witness of how God interacts with humanity, with humankind. Now the psalm begins literally in the sanctuary, in the Holy of Holies. As Asaph writes of the people of Israel crying out to the shepherd of Israel, verse 1, Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, who lead you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth, above the cherubim. Bible students, where is that? On the mercy seat. Good. Above the mercy seat. Atop the Ark of the Covenant. Anytime you see that reference to God who is enthroned above the cherubim, especially in the Hebrew Scriptures, that's what they're thinking of. That's what Asaph is talking about. Going into the Holy of Holies and God's presence right there above the cherubim in the sanctuary. But you should know by now that the golden box with the angels on top was just a shadow of the real thing. Just a picture of the real mercy seat. The ark, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like a photograph, really. I have on my desktop a beautiful uh, picture of a fall lake. 
and the, the colors of the trees all around the lake are bright oranges and reds and golds and, and it's reflected on the lake. And I, I was looking at that the other day and, and as my eyes looked at it, I at first thought, what a beautiful picture. But the longer I looked, the more it pixelated. And the more I realized, that's not even real. You know, I mean, this is an image of the real. This is not what's beautiful. The real thing is what's beautiful. This just reminds me of the real thing. And who wouldn't far rather see the real thing than just have the the picture there that is not actual. And that's what we're talking about when we think of the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. It's a picture of the real thing. Of the reality. The problem is, in our lives, oftentimes, we get so hung up on the picture. We get wrapped up in the superficial. And God's saying, yeah, but there's so much more. I'm real. I'm actual. I am tangible. And so whether it was the tabernacle or or later the temple, the cherubim on the mercy seat on the ark in that central room, the Holy of Holies, was nothing more than a representation of the Holy of Holies, which is an actual literal place where God resides. You can read about this, Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel's description of the four-faced cherubim. And John referring to them in Revelation chapter 4, a stunning reality of seeing God as He is enthroned above the cherubim. But the people cry out here to, to the sanctuary, to where God is, to where He would be enthroned. And they say, You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth, verse 2, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power and come to save us. Why are only these three tribes mentioned? Now when Asaph was writing, remember he was contemporary with David, unified Israel. So all 12 tribes were part of Israel in that day. But Asaph only calls out three. Why is that? Well, did you notice who the psalm begins with back in verse 1? O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. He starts with Joseph and then he refers to Benjamin and Ephraim and Manasseh. Something about Joseph. You remember Joseph. He was that favored son of Jacob. The one with the really cool coat. You know, the member's only coat that he had. See, that's still cool to me. I heard it's coming back. Have you seen... I've seen some members only coats from back in the 80s. Yeah, I had one. It was pretty cool. Should have kept it. Anyway, he had that technicolored coat. That beautiful coat woven. And he was the one through whom God saved the entire family of Israel. Now, there were only 70 of them at the time, but those 70 people with Jacob and his sons living up in the region of, of Israel, it, famine struck, they were hungry. Joseph, who had been kicked out by his brothers and sold off into slavery, now is second in command over all Egypt. And so they go down to Egypt. You may recall that whole story, and I won't go into that right now. But in the closing chapters of Genesis, God saves Israel through the person of Joseph, which helps us understand why Joseph is mentioned. You who lead Joseph like a flock. But now we get to verse 2, and it's like, okay, but what about these three? Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh. Well, they all come from Joseph. They are all part of Joseph. This is really related to Joseph in in other ways. In fact, a thousand years before Asaph wrote this prophetic psalm of the vineyard, another prophecy was given about Joseph. Jacob was on his deathbed, old Israel there, lying down, and he begins to bless his sons, and he comes to Joseph. Genesis 49, verse 22, and he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by by, by a spring, its branches run over a wall. What is Joseph? He's a vineyard. He's described as a vineyard. And so now we come to Psalm 80. And it's a psalm of the vineyard. And so three more tribes are mentioned. Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, who are the immediate family of Joseph. So they're connected directly to Joseph. Ephraim and Manasseh are Joseph's two boys. His sons. Benjamin. Well, what about Benjamin? He was Joseph's only full brother. Twelve sons of Israel... Joseph and Benjamin had the same father, Jacob, but also the same mother, Rachel. You may have recalled the old Rich Mullins song. It's one of my favorites. It's called Jacob and Two Women, where he starts out the song singing, Jacob, he loved Rachel, and Rachel, she loved him. And Leah was just there for dramatic effect. <laughs> of course, then you throw in the concubines, Bildad and Zilpah, and the drama increased, and that was one interesting, somewhat dysfunctional family. But Joseph and Benjamin were blood brothers, full brothers. 
And Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's sons. And so this is talking about that, that family of Joseph. But there's more. Beyond just the immediate family. When the people journeyed through the wilderness on their way from Egypt to the promised land, it was Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh who, Numbers chapter 2 tells us, encamped together and caravaned together. So in the full tribe of Israel, those three set out together and stayed together. They again were immediate family. But there's more. What happened to Israel? They got into the land. And after Asaph's time, which is why the psalm is prophetic, after Asaph, Solomon comes along. More peace. Israel expands. The nation gets bigger. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And another man raises up, Jeroboam. And Israel splits. Splits after Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. I know this is old history for some of you. But understand what happened when the kingdom split in the north. The tribes in the north, called the kingdom of Israel, were also most often referred to as Ephraim. Why were they referred to as Ephraim? Because Ephraim was the largest, most dominant tribe. Manasseh, second largest tribe. Those two tribes were the dominant tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so often the northern kingdom was called Ephraim. And yet down in the southern kingdom, you've got Judah and Benjamin. Ephraim and Manasseh to the north. Benjamin now to the south. And the family is divided. Realize when Israel split, this was a division of family. These were people who who had roots that went very, very deep, who were torn apart and placed into two kingdoms rather than one. Well, bad went to worse in 722 B.C. when Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom and with it Ephraim and Manasseh. And they were captured and led off into slavery in 586 B.C. Then Babylon came in and attacked Judah. And Jerusalem was ravished to the ground. The sanctuary was burned as Judah and Benjamin were taken into Babylonian captivity. We know all this, Rick. I know that. But in the background, something else then happens that perhaps we overlook. As the people, the exiles, returned from Babylon, after they came back from captivity, there was no more division. Well, of course there wasn't, because northern Israel no longer existed, and it was just Judah and Benjamin, right? Wrong. We have evidence in the Scriptures throughout where there are people from all of the northern tribes who were part of Israel. After the second captivity, the people were somewhat of one people again, just known as the Jews. Just known as the people who lived there in Judah. A a single people, there was no more division. Jews were Jews. From the north and the south, they just came to be known as the Jewish people or Israel. So Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin are somewhat unified now. Granted, they're in hardship, but they're unified again. No one invites pain. No one goes after struggle or difficulty. No one desires hardship. But there's a great value in it. There's a great value in crises, especially when we look at the vineyard of God. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us as believers, as Christians, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now you can ask the question, why? And you might say, it's not that, I mean, I understand why the Jewish people are maligned in this world. And I understand why Christians are. I get the reason why they're persecuted from a worldly perspective, but why does God allow it to happen? Why does God choose these people, Israel, and allow them to be so tormented and persecuted? Why does God even allow it in the church? Well, there are more reasons than I can go into today, but I'll give you just one. Crisis sows the seeds of compassion. Crisis in our lives sows the seeds of compassion. When you get beaten up, when you face pain and struggle and hardship and division and hurt, it can, if you allow it, it can see compassion in your heart for other people. In fact, it really seems to go one of two ways. Crisis either seeds compassion or it seeds bitterness. And I think what determines the difference is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your relationship with the Father. If you are walking in the Lord, crisis is going to bring out the compassion that God wants. If you're ignoring the Lord, rebelling against Him, crisis is just going to lead to more frustration, anger, and ultimately bitterness. 
But Christ sees compassion in our hearts. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.4 that the God of all comfort comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So as people go through crisis and, and struggling and suffering, they not only become more compassionate, but something else happens. Compassion cultivates community. Compassion cultivates community. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, you may be familiar with this, if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Compassion cultivates community. Crisis brings compassion, brings community. Galatians 6.2, we're told, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now thinking about Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, the tribe of Joseph, Joseph himself, who struggled and suffered greatly. Joseph is a picture for the community of all Israel. The vine, the vineyard of God. Joseph, a picture for Israel, come together for what happened when his brothers came down into Egypt where Joseph was. Suddenly there was not a casting out, there was a reunion. A reunited people. In that time, all Israel was back together again. Jacob and all of his sons in the same place. And it would be a place of struggle and hardship. But notice verse 2. How does it end? It says, it says, stir up your power and come to save us. Come to save us. Not come to save Joseph or, or come to save just Benjamin or come to save Ephraim. No, Lord, come to save us. Who is us? It's united Israel. It's all of God's people now crying out together. But a third thing happens. Look at verse 3. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You see, crisis seeds compassion, brings community. And all of that community grows in intercession. For suddenly the people now are praying together. They're praying together. How do you grow and deepen a church community? I mean, the question has been asked many times and churches respond in different ways. More potlucks and picnics. You know, more fellowship opportunities. We need to bring in a church growth specialist. You know, and have him pull out his charts and his graphs and his, you know, his pie charts and show us how it all works. Maybe we need to develop a business plan so that we can be a more of a fellowshipping church. Listen, as we learn to intercede one for another, we will grow in community. And I see it happening more and more. The more people pray for each other, the more people love each other. What, what's the main thing, Jim and Brian, what's the main thing you guys said you do when you get together? You pray for each other. We pray for our families, we pray for our kids, we pray for our day, we pray. Because intercession breeds community. Community grows in prayer. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. He says in verse 8, I want the men in every place lifting up holy hands in prayer without wrath or dissension. Why? Because you can't pray for each other and be angry with each other. You can't pray for each other and be divided. Prayer overcomes that. Prayer unifies, and if we want to see the Bridge Fellowship continue to grow in fellowship and community and compassion and support, it will require intercession. So as a practical response to that truth, this Wednesday night is a night of intercessory prayer, and I invite you to come. We're actually going to close our Bibles. We're going to worship, and we're going to pray. We're going to spend the whole time this Wednesday night praying. And I'm calling on all of you, and and I will second service as well, inviting the entire church, come and pray. That is the focus of Wednesday night. Don't say, oh, night off, Rick's not teaching. (laughs) Oh, don't get me started on that. (laughs) Come and pray. Make this a night where you say, wow, really? I will be there. A night of intercessory prayer midweek this week, 6.30 right here in the barn. Verse 5. You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have made them drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Now, Asaph is writing this. He he may have looked back a bit and thought of Israel back in Egypt, or perhaps Israel coming into the land. But honestly, what he is describing here is far more potent later on 
in the days to come. Yeah, I read these things and I think, did, did Asaph know? Did any of the prophets really know what was coming for Israel? Did he know that no nation in history would know the tears of Israel and survive to tell about it? I think that's, you know, it's a, it's a two-pronged witness. Israel's pain and Israel's continued existence. It's stunning. It should not be. And yet it is. Why so many tears in Israel? Why the bread of tears? Why drinking tears in large measure, Lord? Well, because Israel rejected their own Messiah. Their only hope. It's not God lashing out against them as much as they rejected their opportunity for salvation. They rejected the very one who could have brought the greatness into Israel. And as Jesus was led out to the cross, there were women openly weeping for Him along the road there. And as He came to the outskirts of, of Jerusalem, He turns to these ladies, Luke twenty three twenty eight, and He says, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. You see, Asaph didn't know, but Jesus did. He knew that Israel would be drinking tears in a large measure for the rest of their time until He would return. I'll tell you this too. Those who would in today's day reject Jesus as Messiah will also know weeping. In fact, the Bible indicates a weeping far worse even than that which Israel has experienced through its time. Verse 7. O God of hosts, restore us and cause Your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Now this is the second time that people sing this refrain. Asaph repeats it three times through the psalm and it leads us wonderfully into the focal point of the psalm and that is the vineyard the vineyard itself. Remember now, three trees. Three trees for Israel. The vine, the fig tree, the olive tree. The vine tree speaks of what time frame for Israel? Joshua to Jesus. Good. Alright, got that. Verse 8. Verse 8, we see first the planted vine. The planted vine. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. This is Israel, the planted vine, brought out of Egypt and and planted there into the land, and it was prepared for the land. Israel, the people of Israel, were prepared in Egypt to come back into the land. And God always does this, but note note specifically verse 9. Asaph says, you cleared the ground before it. Verse 8 says, you drove out the nations and planted it. And we get that. He drove out the nations, Joshua and the people, they came in, and they began to push back against the nations. But that's not what verse 9 says. You cleared the ground before it. Historically, something happened 50 years before Charlton Heston faced Yule Brenner. Fifty years before Moses met Pharaoh, the actual Pharaoh that we read about in Scripture there in Egypt, fifty years before that Pharaoh, there was another Pharaoh. And he led the Egyptian army. His name was Pharaoh the uh, Tutmos the III. III. I'll repeat that one more time for you mothers thinking about names for upcoming children. Tutmos. <laughs> Uh, I'm not even going to mess with that one. Tumos III led his army into Canaan. They went into Canaan's land. Again, this is 50 years before Pharaoh and Moses and the people and all that led his army into Canaan on a devastating military campaign. And he seriously diminished the strength of the Canaanites. Read in that context, verse 9, you cleared the ground before it. God not only gave Israel the strength to fight, but before Israel even arrived in the land, God was already clearing the land to plant the vineyard. It's the way God does things. He prepares the people for the land. He prepares the land for the people. By the way, He did the same thing in World War I. World War I, which is a curious uh, war. It's, it's hard to... It's very technical in in trying to explain how that war began. It's it's strange and it's interesting in history to read it. But in World War I, the Ottoman Empire that had all power over the whole region there that is Israel today, the Ottoman Empire sided with Germany and lost and completely fell apart. The land in World War I was suddenly wide open. God cleared the ground. 
And then in World War II, you may remember, the people were prepared for the land. World War I prepared the land for the people. World War II prepared the people for the land. Because before that, the Jews were all content to live in America and in, and in Europe. Why should we try and go back to, to Israel, you know, to that old ancient land? We're, we're happy where we are until the Holocaust hit. And the Jewish people began to realize if we don't have a homeland, we will not survive as a people. So God prepared the land in World War II. He prepared, or World War I, prepared the people in World War II and then began to bring them back into the land to replant that vineyard of Israel. The land was prepared for a great vineyard. Verse 11 tells us that it was sending out its branches to the sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, and it shoots to the river. What river is that? The Euphrates, good. Not the Jordan. Not the Jordan. That is not the dividing line of Israel. It never was. Genesis 15:18. the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, an area of 300,000 square miles. And Bible students, in the heyday of Israel under Solomon, how many square miles did they actually have? It was 30,000. It was 10% of God's promise. 10%. That's all Israel has ever had in the land. Well, we've heard you mention that before, Rick. What's it matter? I I just wonder, do we shortchange our inheritance like, like Israel did? Do we in our Christian lives consider God is laying all of this wonderful, marvelous inheritance out for us and we go, we'll take 10%, thank you. I have 10% faith. See, Israel had 10%. I think the Lord would look at us as a fellowship and each of us as believers and say, there's so much more. You're taking 10 and I've got 90% more to give you. Do, do you want more? Or are you content to sit back as Israel did and only take 10% of your inheritance? Well, the branches of the vineyard were headed to the sea. It shoots out to the Euphrates, but they never got there. The vine began to reject the vine dresser. So we go from the planted vine now to the plucked vine. Verse 12, the plucked vine. Why have you broken down its hedges, or literally its walls? So that all who pass by that way pick its fruit. A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. Suddenly this beautiful planted vine, God's intention for Israel, is starting to be plucked and torn apart. Historically, Assyria breached the walls, and then Babylon comes in and picks it apart. And even today, you know, there are, there are nations all around that are chomping at the bit to eat up Israel. To pluck it apart even further. The planted vine becomes the plucked vine. And by the way, it mentions boars there, which is an interesting choice of a picture. A boar from the forest eats it away. You know, boars don't just come over and pick a piece of fruit and go happily on their way. You know what a boar does? It takes its snout and it gets in the ground and it digs and it roots and it uproots. And that's the picture here. That the wall is broken down by Assyria and then here comes Babylon like a boar uprooting Israel completely, digging down underneath and tearing it out by the roots. The boars. I think boars describe all those who root against Israel. Anyone who would root against Israel. Babylon... PLO of the 60s, Iran, people standing on street corners saying Israel is an apartheid state. Anyone who roots against Israel is a bore. The plucked vine. Why does God allow this to happen? Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment. But behold, oppression for righteousness. But behold, a cry of distress. Isaiah prophesies, the Lord looks down to Israel, this this plant, this vineyard of His, and all it's doing is producing sour grapes. Bad fruit. And therefore, it was plucked and dug up. Like any vine dresser, you pull it out. You start fresh. Until the people of the vineyard begin to cry out to their God. Verse 14. O God of hosts, turn again now. We beseech you. Look down from heaven. See and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted. And on the sun, speaking of Israel, whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire. Most graphically seen in the Holocaust of the last generation. It is cut down. They perish. 
at the rebuke of your countenance. But gang, now we come to these few verses and the, the, the vine originally that was planted and then plucked, now the people are crying out and they're praying for a protection. To be the protected vine of God. Come and protect us. Now Jesus, like Asaph and Isaiah, will tell the vineyard parable, but He adds more to it. Matthew 21. Keep your finger there and flip over to Matthew 21. Jesus completes the picture of the planted and then the plucked vineyard. And here we have, amazingly, as you're flipping there, Asaph, thousand years before Jesus, Asaph is writing this prophetic psalm and he is crying out on behalf of the people, protect us. Oh Lord, come and, and protect us, strengthen us. We're burned with fire, we're cut down, we're, we're plucked, we're uprooted. Protect us. And Jesus comes along and he gives full explanation about what's going on. Matthew 21 and verse 33. Listen to another parable. He said, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now a Jew hearing Jesus tell this parable would go directly back either to Psalm 80 or Isaiah 5. If they know their Bibles... Jesus begins using the parable of the vineyard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, did, yeah, Asaph wrote about that. Isaiah prophesied about it. That's what he's talking about. Jesus says when the harvest time approached, verse 34, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. What's this talking about? The prophets. The prophets sent to Israel. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw his son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus, taken outside the city walls of Jerusalem where he was killed. Therefore, Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, ironically, the Jewish leaders answered and said, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Yeah, they got it superficially. This is what should happen to people who would do something like that, they say. But what they missed in that moment is Jesus is saying, it's you. You are the vine growers. My father is the land owner, the vine dresser. You're the vine growers, but what have you done to all that he has sent to you? It's an amazing parable. Jesus declares that the salvation of the vine itself depends on one thing. Listen, the son of the landowner. He's saying to the Jewish people in this parable, your salvation comes down to one thing, the Son. The Son. Now look back to the Psalm. In verse 17, Asaph writes the following words, Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. Who is at the right hand of God? Jesus is. He says, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. Well, who called himself the Son of Man? Jesus, again, Jesus called himself Son of Man more than any other title in the entire Scriptures. And he is the man at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what's amazing is in the last moment of his life, Stephen, as he is being stoned to death, just before he dies, he puts it completely together and he cries out, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Which is what Asa proclaims in verse 17. It all comes down to the Son of Man, the one who is at your right hand. Asa cries out to him. He is the princely vine. Jesus is the princely vine, the only one who can bring restoration back to Israel, the princely vine. Verse 18, then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. And again, this is exactly what happens. This is what is prophesied to happen. 
Scripture says this will happen at the return of the Son of Man, who right now stands at the right hand of God. Romans 11.26 says, So all Israel will be saved. There is a salvation in the works for Israel. All Israel? Okay, Rickard, are you one of those pastors that thinks that just because someone is Israel, they're going to be saved? No, I believe that every person who's saved for all eternity will be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Period. So what does all Israel mean? Romans 11.26 It either means all Israel who survive to the end of the tribulation will be saved because that group, that remnant of Israel who survived through that time will all believe in Jesus. Or possibly it means that those who survive will be Jewish people from all Israel. Representation from all 12 tribes will be saved. Isaiah 11 verse 11 Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people. And He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Watch this. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart. And those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim in the north, Judah in the south. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim, because Israel, all Israel, one people, will be saved when Jesus comes to replant the vineyard. Now, Psalm 80 speaks of the vineyard of Israel. From Joshua to Jesus, the whole history of Israel in the land, and then Jesus leaving the land and then being driven out. But there's something else emerges here in this psalm that that we need to see, because I believe it speaks to us very personally. If you notice, this single refrain is repeated three times in the psalm. It's in verse 3, in verse 7, and again in verse 19. The single refrain, look back at verse 3. This is what caught my eye at the tail end of, of my study this last week. Suddenly, there's a subtle change in each one of these refrains. He starts off, he says, Oh God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Oh God, the psalmist cries out. Oh God, the people cry out. It's a cry to the, to the omniscient God. Oh God, who is all-knowing, who is aware of Israel, but distant. He's distant. If you define God as omniscient, as all-knowing, and leave it there. He knows everything, but but He's out there. He's distant from us. Then verse 7, it's not, O God, it's O God of hosts. O God of hosts, restore us and cause Your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Now, the omniscient God becomes the omnipotent God. He is all-powerful. So not only does He know what's going on in our lives, but He's powerful to save. He can deliver us. But gang, it's still impersonal if you stop there. That is the place where many Christians stop. At the all-powerful God who saved me. Done. Good. I'm going on with my life. But that's not where it stops in the psalm. Verse 19, the psalm ends. O Lord, God of hosts, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. And now suddenly it's a final cry to the omnipresent God. O Lord God, Yahweh. It's the personal, immediate, intimate God that they cry out to, that they finally come to. O God, at the beginning, I know that you know, we know you know that we know, and you're out there knowing, but you're distant. O God, God, O God of hosts who's powerful, God over the armies, omnipotent, able to come, able to save. Good, come and save us. We need you to save us. But still different, still impersonal. And now, oh Lord, Yahweh, Israel recognizes all this, comes to this place of doing something, listen, that Jewish people will not do today. Jewish people will not call God by name. They call Him Hashem, the name. They'll pray to the name. There's a distance there. And that distance is only breached by Jesus. It's only bridged that gap by Jesus Himself who is personal. But here at the end of Psalm 80, they cry out, they call God by name, O Yahweh, God of hosts. Not only are you omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipotent, all-powerful, but you are omnipresent. 
You are here among us. You are our God. That name is Yahweh. I am. And He is present with us. Listen to it again. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man whom you made strong for yourself, that being Jesus. And then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name, O Lord. We will call your name when? When the Son of Man comes. When? The man at the right hand of God comes to us. Then, once again, then finally, we will call out upon the name of God. And Zechariah says in Zechariah 13.9, I'll bring the third part through the fire. I'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. And I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord Yahweh is my God. See, a day is coming when Israel will name their God once again. And I don't know that they'll just say Yahweh. I have a feeling what they'll say is Yeshua. Yeshua. They will be able to name Him. Who is God to you? And I really challenge you to think about this in, in, in honesty. Who is God to you? Do you know Him by name? Do you call Him by name? Do you have any kind of emotional response when you hear the name of Jesus? Revive us and we will call upon Your name. This is my prayer for our fellowship. Above all other things, that that we will be a, a fellowship of people who call on His name. We can talk about His name all we want. But unless we call on His name, we are nothing but another dead church. I'm probably going to offend some of you. So, just know that. I'm just telling you ahead of time, here comes something that may be offensive to one or two of you. If you're not coming on Sunday mornings to worship the Lord, to call on His name, I'm going to ask you to consider whether you should come at all. And please understand, it's not that everybody is not wanted here. It's not that Pastor Rick doesn't desire everyone to be here. It's just that we have this awe-inspiring, overwhelming, almost incomprehensible opportunity to name God personally. To come before Him and into His presence in worship. To enter the sanctuary in relationship with Jesus Christ. And i got to tell you, it breaks my heart when I hear some of what I've heard recently. Like what? Like... Well, now with this new schedule, we'll just go to the teaching and we'll buzz out right afterward. When I hear things like, and I didn't see it, so I don't know, but when I hear things like after first service last week, three rows emptied out when worship began. When we think about Jesus paying for our entrance into the sanctuary with His own precious blood, but we say, I like the teaching, I just don't want to go into the Holy of Holies. I'll stay in the outer court. You know what you're doing? You're choosing 10% instead of the 90 that God is offering. When we head for the door, when worship begins, we spurn the gift and we scorn the Savior. And I'm not talking about those who leave because of children. Now I'm going to talk the second hour probably a little differently. I'm not talking about those whose hearts break as they head out the door. Oh, I, I, have to, I don't want to leave. I just want to be here. I need you all to understand something. And, and I say this with, with all the love that I've got in my heart. We didn't move worship to highlight teaching. We moved teaching to highlight worship. That we would be a worshiping church. That we would be a church that doesn't just call Hashem, the distant God, the powerful God who saved us, you know, low those many years ago, but not the personal God who is here now and with us now. Hey, if this doesn't change us, what are we doing? Why are we even showing up? If you want to play church, listen, we can give you a map. There's plenty of churches around that you can go play church at. And I don't mean to be offensive toward other churches. But the Bible talks about a dead church in Revelation chapter 2. A church that needs to wake up. It has a name, an onoma which is where we get the word denomination. You have a name and you think you're alive, but you're dead, Jesus says. Is that going to be the bridge? Absolutely not. I'm concerned when the Seahawks trump the sanctuary. Game was 10 o'clock last Sunday morning. Got to get home for the game. Really? You don't have a DVR? 
Come on, Rick. It's just the way it is. I don't accept that. I don't accept that we have to be American Christians. I reject that. Absolutely, outright. And if you want to be that, don't go to the bridge. Because this fellowship must be about entering into the most holy place where Jesus is. We must be about pursuing Him and loving Him as actual and real. Not a box with some angels on top. But the real thing, Jesus Himself, who says, where one or two or two or three are gathered in My name, I'm there. I'm with you. I am present. And the, the question that convicted me all week long was, do I learn anything at all from the vineyard of Israel? Do I look at their example and say, do I want that? Planted by God, but plucked because I have no relationship with Him, because I reject Him, ruined, ravished again and again. And Israel, by the way, will be ruined again. Don't have time to go into that this morning before finally realizing its desperate need for the sanctuary. And you and I come in here on a Sunday morning and Jesus says, would you like to enter my sanctuary? And we can. Or we can say, no thanks, Lord. I've got lunch plans. I've got other things to do. On the weight of things in my week, you know, I can give you an hour and 20, but beyond that, I mean, even that's long. A lot of churches just go an hour, Lord. So that extra 20 minutes, that's a bonus that I'm giving you. You should appreciate. <laughs> you know, you read of churches, especially early on, even in our country's history, that would go on worshiping for hours. I don't think the American church could do it today. You cross that two-hour mark, and it's killer. It's just... <laughs> he's doing another song? <sighs> I told the shepherds last week, I will not be involved with a dead denomination. I will not work ever again in a lifeless church. And I'm not even saying we are. Please don't hear that. I'm saying we will not be. Not here. Not at the bridge. Not when so much is at stake in these last days. It's not just about us entering the Holy of Holies either. It's about us proclaiming the way to people who don't even know where the tabernacle is. Who have no idea that there's a God who loves them, who wants to save them, and who wants to be in their life. We've got to get beyond ourselves in all this. If you want a lifeless church that doesn't impact you, doesn't make you uncomfortable, doesn't rattle your schedule, then perhaps the bridge isn't for you. I hope that's not what you want. I've had heartache this week over talking about these things. I just have such a desire that we would all be caught up in the name of the God we love and we worship. That as worship goes on, suddenly we would just be where He is. Jesus said in John 15, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, He bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And I pray the prayer that Asaph wrote. In fact, would you just pray this aloud after me? Repeat this in prayer to our Father. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us. And we will be saved.